Good morning. We greet you in the precious name of Jesus. It's a privilege to be with you again. Troyers like efficiency, and so I'm going to uh, just share a few things here to, in order to answer a lot of questions at once. Um, as some of you at least know, my wife and I just returned from Africa. We're grateful to my parents for taking in our young people while we were going. And uh, there's been some curiosity about what we were doing there. Um, there's a, a large school in the Democratic Republic of Congo. They're not Mennonite people, but uh, they've been in contact with Christian Light and uh, appealed for some help in making their, the transition with their people from public education to Christian education. It's uh, a new thing for them culturally, and so um, uh, they, they're finding their way through this. And so Brother Jonas Souter and Ivy and myself went over there for, um, we were there not quite two weeks, uh, to, um, to spend some time there evaluating the classrooms. Uh, we spent a lot of time with the administration just answering questions, and we also did some teacher training while we were there. And we were encouraged to see that work going forward. They have uh, somewhere between 3,700 and 3,800 students in the school. So um, it's something that definitely can have an impact. And uh, it was encouraging to see the Lord at work there among those people. And we're grateful for the opportunity to have shared in that. So that gives you just a a very brief glimpse of uh, what that was all about. I'd like to invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning. While you're turning there, the story is told of Alexander the Great, the Greek emperor, and he was known for conquering a lot of areas. And on one of his campaigns, while he was out to broaden the borders of his empire, word reached him that one of his soldiers, also by the name of Alexander, was misbehaving badly and bringing reproach on the Greek uh, army as a result of that, throwing a bad light on them. Upon learning of the problem, Alexander sent out orders that this soldier report to his tent. And when the soldier appeared before the commander, Alexander said to him, Soldier, what's your name? The young man said, Alexander. The commander looked him straight in the eye and said, Soldier, Either change your behavior or change your name. Now, Alexander the Great's goal there was to preserve something that he valued. And today, we serve a much greater king than Alexander the Great. We serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And there's a name to be preserved with that. And God's question to us is, Is our behavior such that it preserves that name? Are we worthy to bear the name of Christ? Are we worthy to be called Christian? Because God is concerned about the glory of his kingdom and about the beauty of his kingdom. So this morning we'd like to look at the subject of separation because separation from that which is not of God, is essential to us being the light, the testimony, the glory that God desires us to be. Separation is a cardinal doctrine throughout the scriptures. It was established, first of all, in the Garden of Eden for the preservation of man, and later in the message, Lord willing, we'll look at that a bit. 
It was the call of the patriarchs. For example, to Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred unto a place which I will show thee. It was the command to Israel, for example, from Exodus 34, verse 12, Take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, whither thou goest, lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. Separation permeates the teachings of Christ, and it's the condition for New Testament saints throughout the epistles. And I believe that this study becomes vital to us today as this doctrine and its applications are are under attack. Let's simply put it that way. Sometimes overtly, sometimes covertly. But it's a doctrine that we need in order for the preservation of ourselves and also the preservation of the glory of the kingdom of God. Today we see much in our culture and it influences us in our thinking with the push for tolerance and compromise, the mixture of truth and error, the worldly lifestyle and attitudes of many who name the name of Christ and all of those things are an attempt to mix that which is unmixable. So let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 here. I'd like to start reading at verse 14 and read through chapter 7 and verse 1. It says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And back in verse 1 of chapter 6 here, one of the burdens that Paul had as he wrote this was that we receive not the grace of God in vain. And I believe one of the ways that we might receive the grace of God in vain is to recognize the work of Christ and take that for ourselves but at the same time miss the call of upholding the glory of Christ's name. And if we simply take without bringing that glory we're missing much of what we are called to as people of God. And so it's in that context of not receiving the grace of God in vain that we find this exhortation concerning our separation. The Apostle Paul here explains the separation by using various analogies. And we see as we look at this passage the unmixable nature of the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. The two are unmixable. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world are opposite by nature and therefore insoluble, we might say. You know, we in, um, in life we have things that are solutions and we have things that are solution. We have things that are solutions and we have suspensions. Those are the two terms I wanted. We have suspensions and solutions. For example, you, uh, 
want a cup of chocolate milk. You take the milk and you pour in the quick and you stir that up and you get distracted, walk away from it for a while. After a while, you come back and find a nice brown layer on the bottom and the milk is fairly white again. That's a suspension. But if you, if you take a teaspoon of sugar and stir it into your cup of tea, you can walk away from that for as long as you care to and it will still be sweet. The sugar won't settle to the bottom. That's because in one a chemical process take place where molecules bind with each other and it's very difficult to separate those molecules. About the only way to uh, purify sugar water or salt water, for example, is through, uh, through uh, an evaporative process where you distill the water. <clears throat> Whereas in a suspension, things are mixed together but they do not bond. And that's what we have in relation to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world as we experience it today, this is a suspension and we dare not try to make it a solution. In John chapter 17, not going to take the time to turn there, but Jesus said, I believe it was in verses 14 to 16, he described how we are not of the world, but we are in the world. And his prayer there was that God would keep us from the world even as we are in the world that it remain a suspension where we are mixed in, but we do not become a part of it. And so we need to remember that the elements that comprise the two kingdoms are incompatible with each other. doesn't matter how long you stir it. doesn't matter how hard you might try, what means you might take to try to blend them together. They cannot be blended. Paul here starts, first of all, by saying, What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? The kingdom of heaven is characterized by righteousness. For example, Romans 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of heaven is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Also Hebrews 1, verse 8. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Righteousness is a characteristic of the kingdom of heaven. But righteousness that becomes contaminated with unrighteousness is no longer righteous. Righteousness that becomes contaminated with unrighteousness is no longer righteous. Just take the things that the Pharisees were doing. They prayed long prayers. Why? To be seen of men. And they earned Christ's condemnation. Something good was polluted by something which was unrighteous and so so that practice was no longer righteous. And so if we do a good thing from the wrong motives, then we are attempting to blend things that cannot be blended and it turns into unrighteousness. God allows no room for that contamination. It goes on, What communion hath light with darkness? Again, the kingdom of God is characterized by light. First John 1 verse 5 this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 and 5. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So the kingdom of this world is opposite from that. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So what's the nature of light and darkness? 
Where light is, darkness cannot be. There's light streaming through the windows. There's light coming from the various lights in the building. And it is not dark in here because light is present. Where light is not, darkness will be. And it is so in the kingdom of God. Where Christ reigns, there is light. John chapter 8 verse 12, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. That's a wonderful privilege that we have. And so we are either walking in light or in darkness. Matthew six twenty-two and 23 make that clear, that there's not a halfway point in those things. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If, if therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? And so to walk in the light, we must come to the light. And in the process of doing that, we separate ourselves from darkness. Ephesians 5 and verse 11, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. We separate ourselves from them as we walk in the light of God. Also, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Why? That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our purpose. That we show forth those praises who has called, of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It goes on with another question. What concord hath Christ with Belial? Concord has the idea of agreement or accord, getting along, working together. But there can never be peace between two parties when one party is determined to destroy the other. And that's what Satan and his kingdom of darkness are attempting to do. They want to destroy the kingdom of light. What concord hath Christ with Belial? Think of the opposites in relation to Christ and Satan. And this is just a short list. It could go on and on. Christ saves. Satan destroys. Christ is the truth. Satan deceives. Christ gives. Satan takes. Christ serves. Satan enslaves. Christ loves. Satan hates. Opposites. Totally opposite. So there is no concord between them. Then it asks, What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? An infidel is one who does not believe. One who is full of unbelief. Belief and unbelief obviously are antonyms. So what part hath he? There is a different view of things between those who believe, those who have separated themselves unto God, and those who have not. And that will affect the whole philosophy of life. It affects the worldview. People who are unbelievers have a whole different focus in life. The things of origin, the things of our purpose here, the things of destiny are different in the eyes of the unbelievers. And so a different worldview will result in different thinking, different values, and different purposes. And for that reason, I believe it's important that as the people of God, we maintain a healthy skepticism about those things which are produced by unbelievers. Now, I'm not saying that we can't use anything that unbelievers produce. I believe probably all of us came to church in a vehicle this morning, probably produced by unbelievers. 
But at the same time, we need to be cautious about those things which they produce, recognizing that those are produced from a different worldview than what God calls us to. And some of those things that may seem innocent might not be quite as innocent as they appear when we get into a deeper thought in relation to those things. So we ought to maintain a healthy skepticism about the things that are produced by unbelievers. It asks, what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? What agreement had the temple of God with idols? We'd be horrified if we would come to church some Sunday morning and find an image up here. Whatever church you may attend, you'd be horrified. It, would, it doesn't belong. All right. Who is the temple of God today? We are. Ye are the temple of God, it says. And so we need to be careful with what goes into this temple and what appears on this temple so that it's a representation of what God has designed us for. And that's going to impact what goes in, in literature, in music, in you name it. And it's going to Regulate how we appear that we appear like the temple of God. It's going to make a difference in those things. The temple of God and idols are dedicated to an opposite purpose. And we need to remember there can only be one supreme in our life. I think we've laid the groundwork well enough for that in looking at various scriptures. There can only be one supreme in your life. For ye are the temple of the living God. As it says in verse 16, a temple must be cleansed, sanctified, dedicated. God cannot dwell where there is unrighteousness, where there is darkness, where Belial dwells, where there is unbelief, or where there is idolatry. And so we see so clearly from this passage, there's no fellowship between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. There is no communion, there is no concord, there is no part, there is no agreement to use the biblical terms in this passage. It simply isn't there. And so we are called to be separated unto God. I'd like to go back to the beginning now, Genesis chapter 2. And then later on we'll look at a few more verses there from the passage we read. Genesis chapter 2. I'd like to read verse 16 and 17 from this chapter. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. We have God here establishing separation. All right, let's go on down to chapter 3 and verses 1 to 10. And then we'll also read verses 22 to 24. I'm omitting some for the sake of time. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. 
And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And they go on to have an exchange there. And God pronounces the curse going down to verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed in the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So we see here that separation was established prior to the fall. And the purpose of that separation was for the preservation of man. Separation was actually instituted prior to this command to Adam and Eve. We see separation taking place at the fall of Lucifer, where he was cast out of, out of heaven because God and evil cannot dwell together. But in relation to man here, we have, it, have this initial aspect of separation established. Evil was present in the newly created world, but it had no hold over it. Uh, there was no hold on Adam and Eve at this point. And God wanted it to stay that way. He wanted evil to have no hold on Adam and Eve. And so he gave this command Stay away from this tree. Don't take, don't take, uh, don't take of its fruit. God's purpose in establishing separation was the preservation of man. And that's a key thing that I want you to remember this morning. That is still God's purpose for separation. It's for our preservation. And that's a key element of separation. It's unfortunate. I've noticed that among our people at large, there's a tendency if a preacher starts uh, talking about separation, oh, okay, he's going to preach about dress. Well, obviously, dress is an application of this principle. But there's so much more to it. And it, the, the, the doctrine of separation tends to have negative connotations in the minds of an unfortunate percentage of, of our people when, in fact, it is a very positive doctrine. It's not just about saying no, but it's also what we are called to. I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but I think I'll make the point while I'm at it. God calls us from, he, and he calls us to. He calls us from darkness into his marvelous light. He calls us from, let me just, I have a little bit of a list here. Let me find my spot here. He calls us from bondage into liberty. He calls us from condemnation into the grace of Jesus Christ. He calls us from uncleanness to holiness. He calls us from fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind 
to lives of glory and virtue, we're called from something to something that's so much better, incomparably better. And so why would we want to stay back here and mess with those things, those things that pollute, those things that drag down, those things that keep us from rising to that high and holy calling that God has given to us when there's so much there? And this is not just about our personal benefit. Yes, it's a blessing. It's beneficial when we rise to that calling. But this is also about upholding that name as we were talking about early in the message. And so let's never think that separation is a negative doctrine. Separation is for the preservation of man. And separation is about rising to those things which God has called us to so that we may experience the abundant life in Christ and that we may show forth the glory of our wonderful Lord. Those are all involved in this. God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. That's what it says at the end of creation. And we need to recognize that the that evil is the corruption or the abuse of that which is good. For example, um, marriage. God created marriage right there at the beginning. And today we see all kinds of corruptions of that. Is marriage bad? No, marriage is still good. But the abuse of that becomes evil. The same is in relation to the one flesh relationship between husband and wife and all the all the corruptions of that that are around us. Sustenance. God designed us to partake of the things that he had created for our sustenance. Sustenance is fine and good. Intemperance is not. Intemperance is the abuse of that which is good. Diligence is a good thing. But covetousness takes diligence too far and it becomes an abuse. And we could go on naming all kinds of virtuous things and good things and seeing how that evil is the abuse of that which is good. Nearly everything that man uses for evil was initially created or invented for the furtherance of good. Just take example the work on the printing press. Gutenberg's goal there was to be able to print the Bible at a reasonable price so that many more people could afford it. Today, all kinds of things roll off of the printing press. Many things that we wouldn't want to even um, set before us. And so that evil is the abuse of that which is good. We also need to recognize from this passage in Genesis that there is never a need for the knowledge of evil. There is never a need for the knowledge of evil. Now that's a mouthful, but I believe it's true. Because as we look at what God put in place here he created man everything was very good and God said you stay away from the knowledge of evil now that has implications and applications that go beyond the scope of this message I'll let you meditate on that one but a a few things that I'd like to point out God designed man to function without the knowledge of evil That was the way he created man to start with. God designed man to function in harmony with him. And his absolute holiness requires the absolute holiness of all that he comes in contact with. So God created man in purity. And in order for man to maintain that purity and that harmonious relationship with God, God said, stay away from the knowledge of evil. And as long as man retained that purity, he had free and harmonious contact with God. The very knowledge of evil corrupts the thinking and life of man 
so that his relationship with God cannot be the same as it would be otherwise. The very knowledge of evil corrupts the thinking of man in such a way that he cannot relate to God in the way he did formerly. Probably most of us at some time or other have yielded to some level of curiosity about something that was evil. We, we were curious about this and in one way or another we may, have, we may have allowed ourselves to be exposed to something evil. And you know what the outworkings of that are if you can identify such an experience of whatever nature it might be in your life. There's something there that you wish you had never known. Something you wish you could just forget. Something you wish you had never exposed yourself to. That's the corrupting nature of evil. The knowledge of evil begets evil. Exposure to evil propagates evil. And so don't yield to curiosity about evil. It will have the same effect on us that it had on Adam and Eve. And if you doubt my point, just think if you've ever been in an inner city or possibly even in contact with homes around here and you've seen these small children and words come out of their mouth, curse words and things like that, and you're like, ooh, out of an innocent child comes a vocabulary like this. Exposure to evil begets evil. And so the fact of the corrupting nature of the knowledge of evil is one of the foundational principles of the doctrine of separation. The corrupting nature of the knowledge of evil is one of the foundational principles of the doctrine of separation. We also see from this passage that evil is designed to appeal to man's nature. In chapter 3 there, verses 5 and 6, as Eve was tempted, she saw that the tree was good for food She saw it was pleasant to the eyes and it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. And that fits right in with the teaching in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 15 to 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of this world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God shall abide forever. We have those three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Eve saw an appeal to her nature on the level, on all three levels. This tree was good for food, the lust of the flesh, the desire to indulge the flesh outside of the parameters that God has set that said, This is right. This is good. Stepping outside of what God has defined is indulging the lust of the flesh. And that can that can apply in a lot of different ways besides for food. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, the avenues through which things like luxury, uh, riches and other things like that draw us away from what is truly valuable and what is truly beautiful. And the pride of life, it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. Oh, I'm going to understand some things that I didn't understand before if I partake of this fruit. That appeals to the pride of man. The desire for vainglorious displays in one way or another. 
pride leading to the desire for prominence, recognition, superiority, and so on. And sin will present itself in a manner that appeals to one or more of these three things. That's the nature of sin. And because of the appeal of sin, man cannot of himself fully discern the need for separation. As Eve stood at that tree and saw these three things in relation to that tree, the discernment was gone. This appealed to her. And we have to be people who recognize that in our humanity, in our carnality, those things will appeal to us as well. And so we simply have to go back to what God has said is right, what God has said is valuable, what God has said will do us good, and simply accept that. We may not always see it, we may not always feel it, we may not always sense it, but what God has said is true, and we can always go with that. But the fact that evil is designed to appeal to man's nature is also one of the foundational principles of separation. Separation, on the other hand, limits our exposure to sin and thereby minimizes its appeal. You know, maybe you, uh, the children maybe wonder sometimes, why don't we have TV in the house? Or why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? Simple thing there. Separation from things like that minimizes exposure to evil and therefore thereby minimizes the appeal that it has toward us. And so separation is valuable in minimizing that appeal. We also need to recognize that sin separates man from God. Man's fellowship with God was broken. We see that in verses 8 to 10. Prior to this, Adam and Eve had free fellowship with God. But something happened. The partaking of the fruit was an expression of unbelief of what God had told them. And it brought upon them things that they weren't expecting. And I believe that God's question to Adam here, he said unto him, Where art thou? God was not just asking Adam, where are you physically located in the garden here? I believe God was asking Adam, Adam, where do you find yourself with what you've done? What is your condition? What's your standing with me? What has happened to your relationship with me? Where are you? And I believe that Adam's response speaks of more than just being physically unclothed. Adam found himself stripped of the purity that God had given him, stripped of the dignity of being the crowning point of God's creation, stripped of that innocence, stripped stripped of that harmony. It was gone. And Adam, though he probably didn't identify all of that mentally yet at this point, recognized that something had really changed. And sin will always do that. We will find ourselves at sea. And we will find ourselves stripped of those things which God would so gloriously bestow upon us. Sin separates man from God. In place of peace, joy, and fellowship with God, there was guilt, fear, and shame. And such is the consequence of every sin. Sin also separated man from God's provisions. There in those last few verses in chapter 3, man was sent forth to till the ground. He was separated from the tree of life. 
Isaiah 59, verse 1 and 2 say this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear you. Sin always separates from God. And the fact that sin always separates from God is another foundational principle in relation to this doctrine of separation. We will be separated either unto God or unto sin. And as I said before, we are called from to. God does not call us in a vacuum and say, well, you just have to quit that. God calls us to something that is good, something that is wholesome, something that is beneficial, something that is a blessing. So in review, we have these basic basic principles of separation that we've been looking at. The nature of the two kingdoms is unmixable. We are either a friend of the world and an enemy of God or a friend of God and an enemy of the world. We must mortify and put off sin so that we... We may put on righteousness. I didn't say it in those exact words previously, but the thought was woven in. We avoid being conformed to this world by being transformed by the renewing of the mind. There is never a need for the knowledge of evil. Evil is designed to appeal to man's nature. Sin always separates from God. And we have a special calling. As another verse says, we are a chose, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people that ye should show forth. I went blank on the rest of the verse, but anyway, I think you're familiar with it. Separation is for our preservation. Now, if, you, if you'll turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I'd like to close by looking and if you at those last few verses that we read there again separation is a positive doctrine and separation was established by God from the beginning that man may be kept for him and as sinners all of us have violated that separation but God calls us to repent of that as we heard in the lesson this morning and to join ourselves unto him, to separate ourselves unto him. Let me read verse 17 and 18 again. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Listen to the heart of God in these verses. God wants to dwell in you. God wants to walk with you. God wants to be your God. God wants you to belong exclusively to him. Touch not the unclean thing and separate yourself unto God. Listen to the longing of God's love here. I will receive you. Those of us, though we rejected him, Yet he says, you come to me, you separate yourself unto me, I will receive you. He's not saying, okay, I'm going to hold you at arm's length until you prove that things have changed. But rather, he receives us under the blood of Jesus Christ. I will be a father unto you. And when you think of a father, you think of one who gives wise direction. You think of one who gives provision for the physical needs of the family. You think of one who can be looked up to as a role model, 
And God is God is all of those things to perfection and not just physical provision that he provides for us, but spiritual provision as well. I will be a father unto you. You shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Stop and think of that. That's a tremendous privilege. The Lord Almighty, the God of heaven and earth, is pleased to call us his sons and his daughters as we separate ourselves unto him. And I trust, I pray that that is your experience as you walk with the Lord. That you forsake all of that which would hinder that relationship that God wants with you. And you embrace all of those things which God extends to you. God never shortchanges us. We're never going to lose by giving up something that's a hindrance to our relationship with him. Appealing though it might be to our to our own nature. But rather, as we separate ourselves unto God, we find our life overflowing with the abundant blessings that he has. And so, again, separation is a positive doctrine that God has established for your and my well-being. And so let's embrace all that he has called us to and put off all those things that are unworthy of the name of Christ. May God bless you. Shall we kneel to pray?